This is episode 44 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When it comes to life, words are important. And when it comes to the higher Christian life, it's often the small words in Scripture that are the most important and open the door for a deeper intimacy with and an understanding of the Lord Jesus. And I'm talking about really small, simple, seemingly insignificant words like the word no. That's right. No, not N-O, but K-N-O-W. So why is this so important? Well, just think, our faith, unfortunately, is often based on head knowledge or mental assent or intellectual knowing and only becomes real to us when it is known by experience. It usually comes firsthand in the midst of a tough time or a trial by fire. That's what James 1 talks about. And the higher Christian life is not a life of intellectual assurance only, but a faith based on our experience with the Holy Spirit who now lives and dwells and inhabits us. After all, unless our faith is tested by trials and tribulations and we experience its truth, it doesn't become real to us and remains academic in nature. We have to know Here's that small word again, him by experience and not just by mental agreement. And this is where it gets really exciting. I hope I've piqued your interest today and you will join us as we simply introduce the word no and show how important the small words in scripture are to embracing the higher Christian life. And we'll do this by exploring John 21 together. So let's jump right in, shall we? There's a passage in the book of James that speaks volumes regarding our understanding of the higher Christian life. And by now, you know that the higher Christian life is achieved by a surrendering and total trust to the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just trusting him for the sweet by and by promises, like he will go to heaven when we die, but trusting him to live his life through us today. So we'll bear his fruit today, that will bring him glory today, that will feel and experience and encounter with him and the power through him today. So our life will be the abundant life that Christ promised and not the maybe lukewarm on and off kind of life most Christians adhere to today that the church has accepted as normal today. So how do we raise our game? How do we recapture lost ground? How does our faith become so real to us that we experience, based on where we are today, this higher Christian life? There's a passage, actually several verses in James chapter 1, that speaks of this. And let me read these to you, beginning in verse number 2. It says this, My brethren, so he's talking to Christians, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, pitfalls, struggles, temptations, sufferings. When you fall headlong into stuff that we're hoping Christ will get us out of if we embrace this best life now kind of mantra today. My brethren, count it all joy, splendid, delightful joy when you fall into really tough times. Why? knowing that the testing, the trying, the proving of my faith 
produces patience. The word knowing there is the word gnosko. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Difference between knowing something by experience and just knowing something intellectually. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because I know by experience, gnosko, that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces patience. It, it produces the power and the ability to endure under that trial and tribulation because we're holding on and embracing something higher and greater than our temporal discomfort. But it continues in verse 4. But let patience have its perfect, complete, finished, brought to an end work that you may be perfect, same word here, complete, brought to an end, accomplished, and complete, lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. Trials and tribulation, the testing of our faith produces Christ-like character. And the reason is because our faith becomes real to us only when it is tested. Other than that, it's just academic. Well, I believe Jesus will take care of all my needs. I believe that he says that he'll feed the sparrows, and if he's going to feed the sparrows, then, that he'll take care of me. I believe, Matthew 6, 33, that I, if I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he'll take care of all the stuff that goes before that, what I eat, drink, wear, live, and all that kind of stuff. I believe that. But then again, I'm making plenty of money and I've got credit cards coming out of my wallet, I can take care of all my needs myself, so I can believe that academically, I can believe that theoretically, I can believe that philosophically, but I won't believe that experientially until I have to rely on that, and my faith is tested. When I lose my job, when our economy collapses, when things go from bad to worse to horrible, then I realize that I have nothing to hold on to but Christ, and all I have is five barley loaves and two salt fishes, and I bring him to Christ with this kind of faith and say, Lord, I give you everything that I have. Can you feed my family and my extended family? And he does. Then I know his word is true. And I know his word is true by the Greek word gnosko. Now I know by experience rather than just know by the Greek word edo, intellectually, because my faith is tested and my faith now becomes real because I have experienced the end result of my faith, that God is sovereign and faithful and everything I believed intellectually for him to be. I hope this makes sense, and I hope you don't think I'm just belaboring a point here, but these small words in the scripture contain so much truth. Just think about the Bible itself. What do you know about God's word and God's promises? Well, I, I believe they're true intellectually, philosophically, even theologically, but do you believe they're true experientially? In other words, have you lived your life on his word? Have you put yourself in a situation or has God orchestrated circumstances in your life to place you at a level where you have to believe his word is true because you have nothing but his word to hold on to? And when his word is true to you in a situation like that, when your faith is tested, 
through trials and tribulation, then it produces an assurance and a confidence and a gnosko, a knowing experientially that nothing can shake away from you. Nothing can shatter. Nothing can undermine that belief and faith and trust and confidence you have in him because you've been through the fire and you know experientially that God's word is true. But we never get an opportunity to do that. We never hear that kind of stuff preached from pulpits because that seems a little intense for our listening ears today. But when you look at just the word no in scripture, you know, in the English, of course, it's just no. And we have to determine by the context what that no means. But when you look at it in scripture, the Greek word gnosko or edo, and there's a few other ones that are also translated no in our Bibles. We look at gnosko and edo, it changes everything about our understanding of who Christ is and our ability to believe his promises. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for example, the scripture says that the word is living and powerful or living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And then it goes on. It's living. It's not dead. It's not just parchment. It's not some words on a page that is scribed, copied, and it's just passed down. And we kind of believe it because it fits into our religion and we intellectually understand that they're beneficial and they're important to us and we can glean some wisdom from them. But again, it's nothing more than some ancient text like James Joyce's Ulysses or something of that nature. Instead, we know it's living it's pulsating. It communicates life to us and it's active and it's powerful and it's constantly moving and it never changes. And yet every time we look at it, it speaks to us in ways that we can't even imagine. We hear this preached on Sunday, but do we believe it? Do we know that it's true? Well, I know it's true. I understand it's true intellectually. I've accepted that fact. I took a test on it. I wrote an essay on it. My dissertation is on that. And so, yes, I cognitively believe, like I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States, that that is true. Have you ever experienced his word living and active and pulsating and moving and transforming you from the inside out? Uh, no. So your knowledge of God's word is intellectually, is Edo. But what God wants us to have is a gnosko understanding of his word, to know it experientially, to have experienced it internally, to have seen the effects personally in our life. Because once we encounter God's word like that and encounter him, and our faith is based on our intellectual understanding coupled with a testing through experience, then we have the confidence to trust him for even more. And the higher Christian life opens up to us. Let me give you one small example of how these tiny words mean so much in scripture. 
because once we understand the importance of looking at these words and seeing what they truly mean in the Greek, and it's very simple to do. You can go online to Blue Letter Bible or open up some sort of concordance. It's not that hard to figure out what their meaning is. But once you see what that is, it begins to change the whole complexity of God's word. And it makes it alive. It makes it pulsating. It makes it overwhelming to us so that we can experience him in ways we never have before. So instead of looking at no, gnosko and Edo, that we're going to talk more about the next time we get together, let me give you an even simpler word. Let's just look at the word love. Love in the English language is defined by its context or its object. For example, I love my wife. Well, I understand that kind of love. I, I have a wife too. I, I love them. I love my children. I love pizza. I love my favorite ball game. I love to take a nap in the afternoon. I love flowers. I love hunting. I love whatever. And those love is not the same. The intensity is not the same because the object of that love changes. To say I love my children like I love pizza is to devalue my children because I should love them more than I love pizza. And yet in the English, it's just one word, love. But in the Greek, there are several words, a very exact language. There are several words that are translated love, and it doesn't necessarily depend on the object of that word, but the word itself. There's the word agape. Agape is the highest form of love. Agape is the kind of love that God has for us. It's all-powerful. It's altruistic. It's overwhelming. There's no end to it. It's this intense, incredible love that God has for us, that God has for his children, that God has for his son, that his son has for the Father. It's the highest form of love, an unbelievable, intense passionate, faithful form of love. And in the Greek, it's just one word, agape, or agapeo, or a, a derivative of that. Then there's a kind of love we have for each other, and that word is philios. Philios, or philia. It's, it's a brotherly love. It's, a, it's a, a, a kind of affection that friends have. It's like the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia kind of love. So, you know, I have a friend over here, which I love, or philios, and then I have God over here who loves me, agapeo, and I pray that I love him the same way. And, and then, of course, there's the word eros, and that's like a physical, intimate, sexual sort of love that a man has for a woman. It's where we get the word erotic or something of that nature. And then there are a few other Greek words that are translated as love. But what we're going to concern ourselves with in these just closing few minutes, as we build on Gnosko in Edo the next time, is the fact in the higher Christian life, we want to make sure that we are experiencing God at the highest level possible. And we don't want to be bogged down by preconceived notions about his word and what it actually says. So what I want to do in the last few moments we have together today kind of is an introduction before we jump into Gnosko and Edo and how that fits in the higher Christian life is just look at this word love 
and to show you how understanding the underpinnings of that, the Greek definition of that, literally changes everything when you're reading the scripture in English. For example, in John chapter 21, there's this encounter Jesus has with his disciples. He has been resurrected. He sees these disciples, these fishermen out there fishing. He tells them to cast to the other side. They catch this huge catch. Peter recognizes who he is. He dives into the water. He swims to Jesus. They bring this large haul of fish on shore, 153 fish. Jesus is cooking them breakfast. They're all looking at him, knowing it's the resurrected Lord, but afraid to say anything. And so then Jesus begins this restoration process with Peter. Very familiar passage. And here's what it says in John chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. So when he had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Love. Love, just the word love in English. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, this seems somewhat redundant, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Jesus asked a question of Peter three times. First two times didn't bother Peter. The third time made him feel bad. And he said, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why did it make him feel bad? I mean, was it he didn't want Jesus to ask him again. Maybe he didn't think Jesus heard him. Maybe he didn't think Jesus took him seriously. We read this in the English without digging a little deeper, understanding the different definitions of love, like next time we're going to look at the definitions of the word no with gnosko and Edo. And once we do dig a little deeper, everything changes. Here's what it says in the Greek. And when he had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me more than these, more than these fish, more than the old life? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. Really? And he said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agape me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I filio you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, listen very carefully, Simon, son of Jonah, do you filio me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you filio me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I filio you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Well, that makes all the difference in the world. I can feel the sadness. I can feel the, the rejection. I can understand why Peter was grieved. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me like I love you? Do you love me with an overwhelming love, an altruistic love, a, a love like the father has for his son? Lord, you know that I love you as a friend, close friend, my best friend, but I love you as a friend. Feed my lambs. Second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me like I love you? 
He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you as a friend, my best friend, but, but a close friend, but, but just as a friend. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me as a friend? Do you filios me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me as a friend? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you as a friend. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Well, now this is sad. This is really heartbreaking. And we see the great need for Peter to mature in his faith. And by the way, he did. Peter was absolutely changed when his heart of stone became a heart of flesh. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came to live in him and dwell in him and regenerate and change him, just like he has done that to you if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter began to experience the life of the Spirit, what we would call the higher Christian life. But prior to that, this is kind of sad. Now, I'm only showing you this today because I want you to see the importance of taking some time and looking at the word gnosko versus edo when it comes to knowing Christ, because that changes everything regarding how we interpret his scripture and experience him through the scripture. For example, last example, John 10, 14 and 15. Here's what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. Well, I know them intellectually. Well, there's Frank and there's Bob. There's Sam. Hi, Sally. And I am known by my own. Uh, Jesus, we recognize you. Hi, how you doing? I know that guy. As the father knows me, that's three times so far. Even so, I know the father four times and I lay down my life for the sheep. Is this Edo? Is this Gnosko? Is this an intellectual understanding? Is it an intimate, experiential understanding? And which of these words mean Edo or Gnosko? And once you look at this and understand it, it changes this entire verse to lead you into the promised land of the higher Christian life. I know we've covered a lot today. I appreciate you hanging with me. And I look forward to sharing more with you next time we get together. Until then.